0: It must be really nice for the city of Newcastle from, from which you are, uh, from whence you've come, um, Aidan Williams, to have Sam Fender from North Shields to promote, <sighs> with his wonderful accent, the area. He is as commendable as, like, Matty Longstaff is.
1: <laughs> yes, if he, if he wasn't a singer, he'd be the scrot at the end of the street,
0: wouldn't he? <laughs> but he's our scrot. Oh,
1: dear. fact, the the pride we have,
0: yes. Finsbury Park, I think Glastonbury as well. He's going great guns and the album is terrific. Not as terrific as the nearly men, the eternal allure of the greatest teams that failed to win the World Cup. A book about pyrrhic victories, about glorious failure, about swagger, about the intangible quality of a team that never wins the Jules Rimet trophy. Why... Do poor pitches figure up so much in your book?
1: Well, I guess Hungary in 1954 suffered from that, didn't they? And Austria in the 30s as well. I, I guess that's just the time uh, that they didn't have any groundsman and uh, pitch technology was not quite what it was, not quite yeah. what it is now. It's on such things that fates turn, isn't it? And that's, that's, the, that's the thing. Hungary in the 50s, had it not rained that day, Hungary would most likely have won the World Cup in 1954. Austria too. Now there were all sorts of political shenanigans there, so maybe that, <laughs> maybe that would have made no difference. But it was a heavy pitch, and the slick, deft touches of the Austrians and the sort of delicateness of their play was easily negated by the physicality of the Italians on a muddy, hard, uh, a heavy going pitch. Uh, so yeah, it's on such things that that the world can turn and. You know, would West Germany become such a power had they not won that First World Cup? It's, you know, history could go in all sorts of different ways. Equally, you could look at the, the fallout, and I talk about this in the book, the fallout in Hungary from that loss and the the sort of public display of despair, I think, of, of that loss. Uh, as the, the goalie, Gula Grossix talks about, that, that the seeds of the revolution two years later were sown there because public realised that there, there was very little that the authorities could do when so many people were out in the streets protesting and rioting or whatever. And the seeds were starting. Obviously, there's a far more complex issue. There's much more to it than that. But it does have implications on these things. And that's, that's why such moments, you talk there about a heavy pitch or an offside decision, as, as happens in that game.
0: Yeah. Um... so... Yeah, it was just, I I noticed that across a lot of the chapters, just you saying that the the pitch wasn't great, but I think in the last few uh, tournaments, the pitches have been so great, the playing surface has been great, couple that with the back pass rule uh, being abolished, which Michael Cox says is the most significant thing to happen to modern football. Modern football began when yeah. Leeds United almost went down because John Lukic didn't adjust to the new game. What was it like for you watching football change overnight?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, I remember the Euro 92 final. Denmark basically played the last five or ten minutes, passing the ball to and fro between Schmeichel and his defenders and stopping the Germans get it. Uh, and he could pick it up every time. It was... And that, that was normal to us then. And you do wonder why nobody ever nobody well everybody should have seen out every game like that yeah. once you realised that was a thing to do it's, it's bizarre it just seemed a normal thing you could do just to you know, pass it out and pass it back and pick it up that was normal but now looks absolutely ridiculous it was I remember when it came in the, there were all sorts of discussions about because obviously you could head the ball back so there was talk about well will people manufacture a header in some way and I remember a preseason game where I can't remember who it was. Nottingham Forest is what comes to mind, but it might not have been... Well, they went down. Like it was one of the, one, right, but oh, no. there, there was a game where one of their players sort of basically lay on the ground to head the ball back to his goalie so he could pick it up, but I, I'm pretty sure that they they, they outlawed doing that. Um, but it massively changed the game, and as you say, people like Lukic and various goalkeepers who weren't adept with their feet, you know, suddenly they're... They were found wanting, their skill set wasn't up to it anymore. And obviously, this has progressed on through the years into the types of keeper like Manuel Neuer, for example, ahead of the people, the players now like Edison, Allison, and, and so on, who are so comfortable on their feet and could bring the ball out a bit if they wanted to, could act as a sweeper behind a high line if necessary. You know, this was alien <laughs> to people back then. Mm-hmm. The goalie stayed in his box and he saved the shots, that's what they did. So it was yeah, it totally changed the game. I Michael Cox talked about that in his tactics book, I think, or, or yep, one of those. It makes sense. Marking, I think it was a it was a fantastic book as well. And yeah, I I totally agree. It is the biggest change that football's had probably since the offside changes in the nineteen twenties, or whenever it was where they, they utterly changed that. It sped the game up. It made it led to more time in play. Uh, I know the ball's still technically in play when the goalie's holding it, but it's actual proper in play once once the ball's out and moving. Uh, it's, it led to far more of that. It led to more entertainment, I think, because games could just or moments in games could just become this little dull charade of, of the the little play between the goalie and the fullback. It was it's daft now. You look back on it, and it seems it's so obvious, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, totally different. different it, sport. It made it so much faster uh, and required so much more all-round ability from a goalkeeper.
0: And it's interesting that Edison and Allison are competing to be Brazil's number one. I think, I guess they'll both get yeah. games in Qatar. But who would you pick to play the final? Allison, who scores with a <laughs> header, or Edison, who apparently is really good at taking penalties?
1: They do say he's the best penalty taker at Man City, don't they? Mm. Uh, I think I would pick Allison. I think he's slightly more commanding. But, you know, I don't think they'll go wrong with whichever one they pick because they're both absolutely fantastic. But if it came to a shootout, yeah, maybe they'd bring Edison on so he could do uh, what Kepper couldn't and score one as well as, as uh, saving.
0: Yeah, I think I just saw that ball. I think it's reached because I'm not far from Wembley Stadium. I think I saw it a few days later. Still in the air. Um, Kepper, of course, maybe he should have gone last summer when Chelsea could still sell
1: players. Nonsense! Complete nonsense! Up for their contract renewal, well,
0: oh, that's not going to happen. So irritating! Do you know what they did, Chelsea? They made a real Jesper Olsen of things.
1: <laughs> oh, Jesper! Poor Jesper! Yes, Denmark, nineteen eighty-six. Now, this is uh, this is one from my youth. You know, it's the things that have the big impact on you. I think people often, this is one thing we've talked about a lot on these Football Times podcasts, is the things that you remember most in the World Cups that are, that to your mind are the best, you know, the ones where everything is great are the ones which fall in a sort of sweet spot way between the ages of, say, nine and 12 or something like that. Your World Cup 1982 was, I was still quite young, but I remember a lot of it and I was dazzled by by certain things in Brazil. But in, in 86, I was a little bit older. I was 11. So this is still very much formative years. And seeing that Denmark team, I remember the games were very late at night and I was, you know, I was at school. So I would video them on the videotape. We had to set the, the timer for the correct time. And I tried to whiz through it in the morning before school sometimes. And I was watching the Denmark Uruguay game, which had been on. Late in the evening or late at night u k time and I was trying to get through as much of this as I could before school, but you know goals kept happening, and all sorts of great play was happening, and i couldn 't get through it very much because there was just so much happening, and I was so sort of entranced by the incredible play uh, of this Danish team, the Danish dynamite, and they were simply sensational they they could just they just played it with such a a stylish, and we talk, you mentioned swagger. They, they had their swagger and they had this sort of joy and it came through in their play. And, and this is a bit of what I talk about in the book of how, how it came about because they, they were very new to the professional setup in terms of the national team. Obviously, the players had played in various top clubs around Europe and had developed there rather than in Denmark in many cases. But the national team setup was like a fun club and it would only become proper professional outfit a few years before and therefore this fun element was still very much there just despite well married with the professionalism and that came through in their play so much and then yes you mentioned Jesper Olsen so they'd, they'd come through their group in fine style they'd beaten West Germany in the final group game and they'd ended up with a last 16 clash with Spain their nemesis Spain and it had been going fine They'd taken the lead through a Jesper Olsen penalty. Oh, yeah, everyone expected it would just carry on as all these other games had done. They work their way through and, and win in fine style, but it didn't quite come to pass. And poor Jesper, uh, he he gave away the equalising goal with a sloppy, sloppy, no look back pass. I think where he thought the goal he was, but the goal he wasn't and Emilio Butrugueno was and he scored the first of his four goals that day. Mm. The popular myth is it all fell apart instantly, that they all went gung-ho straight after that equaliser uh, pushing forward, but that's not quite the truth. Um, it was still fairly even and they still had, were fairly measured after that uh, playing in a fairly normal normal way for them. It was only as they fell further behind that it just went a bit too gung-ho and fell apart. But yes, poor Jesper Olsen is, is still what they, they call a Terrible, terrible mistake in Danish football as I've done a real Jesper.
0: It, it does seem that every nation that is a nearly man has a kind of Gareth Southgate figure or a Stuart Pearce or Chris Waddle figure as they were known. <laughs> um, and the only kind of um, romancing, not romancing the stone, but kind of, but when you do something bad and do something good to ameliorate it and reverse the spell and break the spell. Because Denmark. Um, had done so well in this game against the Soviet Union. And because you big it up in the book, I had a look. This is uh, Elkjar and Michael Laudrop, both scoring twice in a game against the Soviets, in the qualifiers for that World Cup. And there were blistering goals. Laudrop's finish He finishes one just by kind of passing it into the net from about 25 yards. And just wheels away with this great grin. Uh, David Priest, the goalkeeper, once told me that Michael Laudrop was just... A sensational player, Laudrup himself said Denmark were a European version of Brazil. Uh, would Laudrup have been one of your first posters on your wall, or would Gazzaniga? So. <laughs>
1: no, no. I was even then enchanted by the exotic and the international more than the sort of mundane and humdrum of the local stuff. Yeah, Laudrup uh, and before that, Zico and Platini too. These these are the type of players who. You sort of tugged on your heartstrings, I think, because they were so elegant. They could do things that other people simply couldn't, and that's what is so enchanting about about them. And then also the teams that they played in were so exuberant as well. Laudrup is quite right to talk about the, the Brazilians of Europe and in how they played. It was it was that kind of style and. When we say Brazilian, at that time, that's meaning like the 1982 Brazil team, not like you might think now of that Brazilian swagger isn't quite the same anymore. You know, it's a bit more like everybody else in, to some extent. Yeah. Back then, it meant utter style and utter incredible uh, feats of, uh, of football that you wouldn't expect from anybody else. Brazil in 82 was that, Denmark in 86 were that, and the French In between were that as well. Uh, So yes, absolutely, that type of player, Zico, Platini, Laudrup, were the ones who very much just appealed to me, and naturally I modelled my game on them and went absolutely nowhere.
0: Ah, and that's why you're (laughs) writing about it. The book, just to remind people, it's out on May the 2nd, the nearly men, the eternal Adore of the greatest teams that failed to win the World Cup. Iconography. We know why Brazil in 1970 were good, and that's because a lot of people saw it in colour. We know why Denmark were good in 1986, because unbelievably, Euro 84, where Denmark did really quite well, uh, wasn't shown live on telly. At Bar 2 games, it was just highlights. And Holland in 98, with the orange shirts, and Schilacci, the Italian in 1990, who probably still, if he's alive, he still probably gets served drinks wherever he goes or jamón, or healthy food. It's iconography that does it. If you're looking at romance, certainly in music, which is what I'm looking at this year a lot, um, the more romantic, well, (laughs) let alone the romantic movement of music, which separated it from classical, but the modern style of romantic rock musician, there is something indefinable. You're right. And it's difficult to write a 350-page book on intangibles. But you do it very well, so well done. Just the... The intangible quality and the iconography of the nearly men who don't win and yet are still remembered. So as you were writing this, it's very easy, I imagine, to just think of the icons and Laudrop's cheeky smile and Bert Camp's flick and everything. And Johnny Rep, who you say um, would um, cut inside like Iron Robin. It just as I was reading this article on these Football Times about Johnny Rep. I just wrote down. How important is iconography to a nearly man team?
1: Oh, what a great question! I think it's vitally important because it's about living in the memory uh, for a long time. It's about grabbing people's emotions and their sort of thoughts and feelings far beyond just simply. Oh, I wish they'd won. To live that long in the memory, there's got to be more than just a hard luck story. It's got to be something that really grabs you and holds on tight and it can be as simple as just an image you know it doesn't have to be something that you actually saw in the game it can be things that came later in sort of a photo that goes alongside a newspaper report or something like that of the agony etched on people's faces or the despair of uh, of the crowd or something like that as well as the magnificent moments of joy that and that's where it sort of goes side by side there's the moments of magnificence and the moments of Anguish and pain. And it's like you're looking in on a private personal disaster, but it's being played out in a global stage in front of billions. And for me, because I'm obviously a fan of teams that fail, I just get swept away in that kind of emotion and and the feelings of of the despair of these teams of thinking, oh, why couldn't it just go right one time? Couldn't it just go right for them? But the poet in me kind of prefers it this way you know how a poet needs the pain it's i think i sort of allude to this at the end of the book is does victory have to be sacrificed in order to have the beauty and it, it seems that it does and you talk there about iconography and these magnificent images Some of them are of joy and of of glory and and of the the wondrous things they did. You know, the images of Bergkamp wheeling away after that amazing goal in 1998 with his hands over his face or of Scalacci's sort of guttural roar uh, when he's celebrating a goal. These are moments of magnificence, but behind them is what you know comes next and that it was all in terms of that tournament and victory for nothing but what I'm hoping to, to argue and hopefully comes across in the book is that it wasn't for nothing. It was for, it was for something more than the victory. It was something that lasts longer. And that is the hold that it has over people that I think in many cases gets stronger over time. When you look back on some of these things and, and the sort of agony of how it went, Maybe that pain gets even stronger rather than subsides, but in a, in a way that means you just remember them all the more rather than, rather than just despair at the fact that they didn't win. And you're absolutely right, the iconography is vital mm. to that.
0: Nostalgia is pain plus time. Hey, I did a classics degree, <laughs> and as you were talking about um, glory being sacrificed on the altar of beauty, which is the crux of this book, made me think of just now Hector, whose death is fated He is fated to die at the hands of Achilles, who is uh, avenging the death of his mate, Patroclus, possibly lover, uh, and Hector's body is dragged around uh, by Achilles because Greece win and Troy loses. Um, But everything is fated in the Iliad. The joy about football is that we never know if Newcastle can win with the, the PIF financing it at a tune of, what is it, 23 billion? Something absurd. I mean, Newcastle, if they can pay the wages that attracts the top talent. Because at this stage, Mbappe could sign for Newcastle and no one would bat an eyelid. Um, and then the team with the biggest wage bill wins the league. In international football, it's much like the Olympics. I don't know how much you get for winning a World Cup. It's a darn sight less than you get for losing the Champions League final because it's become about money. And yet Daniel Blanchard once said, the game is about glory. And these, these teams, I do want to focus on Austria, very briefly this was Hugo Meisel's Wunder team it helped that his brother Willie was a sports writer who sat in the coffee houses of Vienna and Paris with Brian Glanville in the 1950s but you say that Meisel and uh, Mats Sindelar both died frozen in time they weren't allowed to do what essentially Thierry Henry is doing nowadays and just popping up and people being reminded oh yeah Invincibles.
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah. It was yeah, it's so symbolic. I get, I get carried away with all this kind of symbolism. Maybe I read too much into it, but I think it's it's a nice way of looking at things. And yes, they both died and didn't see what could have become of that team, but equally it's because the country had died, it was gone. And that, that's where the symbolism of how it all ended. I mean, he died a couple of years, I guess, before the, the end of Austria in the 30s, but Sindelar... That was very much at the time of uh, Nazi occupation, having only been maybe six months old or a little more maybe at the time he died. The two are entwined together and the symbolism just weighs heavy over it all, even if conspiracy theories around the cause of his death may, may not be accurate necessarily of Nazi involvement, but the whole symbolism of it is so deep and so heavy. And, yeah, it's... It's again. It's it's the sort of agony of uh, those that fell short, and what what maybe paths could have gone a different way. I, uh, way, you know, victory in football wouldn't have changed what happened to Austria at that time, of course. But maybe personal paths would have been different. You talk about
0: the, the delicacy of touch, the speed of movement, but it's also intellectual football. It is the precursor yes. to. Well, really, Brazil, because you say that the Brazil 50 side were based on the Hungarian side. And this is the Danubian school about which Jonathan Wilson has written. And there was that book about Bella Gutman, I think by David Bolsover. That might be the wrong name. Um, But this Austria team, where did you source all the material from? Did you get to see footage of them playing?
1: Uh... Not footage, well, I think a few brief ones actually from the 34 tournament. Yes, very brief clips because that's all there really is. Um, and a few contacts from who are, who are doing research into, into tournaments in the 1930s as well, um, which is hugely valuable because there, there just isn't as much raw material for that. I mean, I guess you rely also on research others have done uh, as well to try and you know, arc that in, into the way you want to tell the story and bring in the bits that are relevant to what I'm looking at. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's certainly harder to do from those in that time. There were very brief clips of it uh, of some of the games from 1934, but you, you can't glean too much from them. But you, you're absolutely right, though, about the style and there's the family tree as I sort of see it of Austria leading into. Hungary in the 50s and then onto the Dutch in the 70s and so on and then, and beyond there, all with the, the, the sort of foundation of the withdrawn striker or people being in a slightly different position than they expected. Everything was so rigid at the time. It was the WM formation that England were so rigid with, which is how the Hungarians tore them apart in that famous game in 1953, uh, purely by movement and playing in a position where convention dictated you weren't supposed to be but why on earth not and this began in terms of these world cup teams with the austrians in the 30s and Sindelar playing slightly more withdrawn or slightly between the lines as we might call it today uh which was revolutionary in those days and it's obviously been built on and adapted over the years by so many people and it's gone off in various directions but you can see that lineage in terms of these teams in the world cup uh and that's it's really quite fascinating to see it's really, really interesting how far ahead of their time some of these teams were when you, when you consider how long it took for the penny to drop for people on this island.
0: Oh, well, yes, we weren't even in uh, the 1934 World Cup in a completely, <laughs> completely British way of seeing things, whereas now uh, we're desperate for football. Um, I was going to check. I'm, I love hosting people like you during Watford games because it means I have no interest in following the Watford game which is up at Wolves <laughs> in the rescheduled game. Uh, Wolves of course owned by uh, Fosun a Chinese conglomerate and Gestifoot supplies them with players and that is why I have no interest at all in Wolves none. But Wolves deserve to be in the top tier because from a Youth Cup perspective in the 1950s they lost the first two finals to Manchester United and they are in the semi-finals of the Youth Cup But before we close, I just want to mention, because Aidan Williams, you have dropped two books into the football library. One is The Nearly Men and the other is Worst in the World uh, from 2015. Uh, The one question that I would ask to bring these two together. Why don't we have a crap team World Cup?
1: (laughs) That's well, yes, absolutely. We definitely should. And that's one of the things that actually inspired me to write that first book, because... On my honeymoon, of all things, which was in Antigua in the Caribbean, which is very close to the island of Montserrat, oh, uh, I went on a helicopter ride from Antigua across to Montserrat, which had been devastated yeah. by uh, yeah, the Studios. volcano eruption. George Martin
0: had a studio there completely wiped out.
1: Yes, and that devastation is all still there. And part of, the, part of this helicopter ride was, was seeing all of that, um, but, and, and partly just the fun of a helicopter ride around Antigua, which is you know, a good enough reason as any... Um, But yeah, so so going to Montserrat, even though I didn't quite set foot on it, reminded me of what I'd already known about, but was hidden away, was the fact that they'd played this other final in 2002, uh, round about the time of the the real World Cup final when Brazil and Germany were, were fighting it out. And it was between the two teams at the bottom of the world rankings. It was between Montserrat, which is why it came to mind, and Bhutan, and it was played in Bhutan, and and Montserrat got thumped 4-0. And that ends up as one of the chapters in the the story to decide who really was the worst in the world. And then for a time, I I had a, a blog Um, where I followed the fortunes of those who were at the bottom of the rankings it it, it all became a bit much and I didn't have time to keep it going unfortunately but it was such an endlessly fascinating theme and then the book grew out of that Yeah, again it fits my obsession of international football rather than the club game and you talked earlier about the sort of um how you, you can't just pay money and, and make your team the best in international football and that's why it appeals to me for some when they're turned off by the money of the big leagues they've gone down to non-league games and, and all that kind of stuff for me it was more towards uh my increased focus on an increased love of the international game which had always been there but you know possibly grew to appreciate it even more as a result of all the money sloshing around elsewhere because there's a purity to it uh, and that's why I love it and that purity, that ambition, those hopes and dreams, same in the men. the hopes and dreams there is about winning a World Cup. This, hopes and dreams are there for the international players at every level. It's just those dreams are set differently. Maybe it's just winning a game. Maybe it's avoiding a absolute thumping by some bigger neighbor maybe it's just playing regularly uh and for the pride in your nation and that's where so many great stories from from the bottom of the rankings come along and i found that one really really fascinating to look at as well because it's it's the the whole pride and playing for your country is the same uh it's just at a different level and they've all got hopes and dreams they're just of different things
0: not that 442 magazine needs any more kudos but they've got 100 best players in the Premier League. And then something about Paul Watson, brother of Mark, author of Up, Pon, Pei. You may even have spoken to Paul Watson in the course of running your book.
1: I haven't spoken to him, but I've read his book and I've, uh, I've followed him on various things. Yeah. He, it, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating book <laughs> as well, to go to, to a place like that. I mean, that's beyond the realms of FIFA as well, because it's part of Micronesia, I think, rather yeah. than a separate identity in its own right. But that's exactly the same theme. Uh, and indeed he went on to manage Mongolia as well I think um, but it 's the same theme it 's the pride in in that case uh, an island or a community to be able to represent them and to to show what you can do and to, to come together and that, yeah, oh, this is where the romantic side comes in again for me. And it just all gets, oh, I, I get carried away with it. That's I'm, I'm what. A hopeless football romantic. <laughs>
0: indeed, Not a, you don't get hopeless realism. No one calls themselves a hopeless no. realist. It's always hopeless romantic. Just like you can never be ruthful, you're always ruthless. Um, but the, the easy final question. Uh, as I I will check that yes but I can't believe I forgot to check that Jesper Olsen clip because I still haven't seen it I've only got your explanation of it but one thing I like to say in this football library is that they've all got special editions of these books such as Aidan Williams's books uh, worst in the world and the nearly Mint, where it's all hyperlinked so you can press it with your finger or hover it with it over a mouse and what I want to do is get loads of sports journalism students to create these linked databases much like the guardian do when you click on something that's mentioned it's hyperlinked across so it would all be youtube footage uh to these uh moments but i wanted to ask you a very simple question to finish with i appreciate that you haven't had enough time to think about this but going on the following argentina 1930 and and 2014 austria 1934 brazil 1950 1982 Hungary, 1954, Portugal, 1966, Holland, 74, 78, 98, Denmark, 86, Italia, 90, or Zori, 90, and the Yugoslavian team, whom we haven't mentioned, but I do hope you mention it with the book Stag Do. Make an 11.
1: <laughs> Goodness me. But quick,
0: Goodness we haven't me. got much time. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, wow, okay. Okay, that is a question. That's probably easier for the forward line than it is for yeah, the
0: Yeah, let's start the with the five forwards. Difference. Yeah, start with the <laughs> forwards. Who are you leaving out? Uh, you've got Eusebio, Laudrup, Sindelar, Burkamp, Messi, Socrates, Higaín. Um,
1: well, he, he, he can stay out. Zico. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll not have Higaín. I'll have to have Zico and I'll have to have Laudrup because of the influence Indeed. over me yes. in those days. Skillachi too because he was, he was Italia 90, uh, to, some, to some respect, because he only scored seven goals for Italy and six of them were in that World Cup. So he, he's so inextricably tied in with that World Cup. Mm-hmm. So I'll have him, because he'd be hot in the tournament. And Pushkas yeah. uh, and Cruyff. How many is that? That's five.
0: <laughs> so that means Messi doesn't get in, and nor does Eusebio.
1: Yeah, it seems a bit harsh, it's doesn't
0: It's hard. You? So those are the five right. forwards. Um, you need some semblance of a midfield and a defence.
1: Okay, we'll have Van Hammingen yep. from the 1970s. Falcao, perhaps. Mm-hmm.
0: Goalkeeper, a couple of full-backs and another midfielder.
1: <laughs> fullbacks, the Brazilian from 82. They'd have to be the, those two. Uh, Leandro and Oscar. Uh-huh. I'll have them. That'll be perfect. In terms of goalies, ooh, I think maybe... Oh, wow. We might have to go for someone from further in the past, just because I know they were among the best in the world at the time, which would either be Grossix from the 50s or Rudy Heaton from the 1930s, although he was injured for the tournament. <laughs> but he was part of the wonder team anyway. So I'll go with Grosics then, because he actually played.
0: Fab. <laughs> so I think you're missing... Oh, you could stick another forward in there for this two-two-six 2 6 formation.
1: <laughs> uh, who were the ones you said I'd missed
0: uh, out? Eusebio and Messi.
1: We'll take Eusebio because he had a more, bigger impact.
0: Yeah, we haven't really... I would love to have spoken about Eusebio because I remember reading Kenneth Walston Holmes' book and just the way he said, Eusebio, it made him sound like the best player in the world.
1: And just to briefly mention, he actually was for that period of time between Pelé being great and Pelé being great again. Mm -hmm. And there's one of the goals that he scored there and I described in the book where there's the thud of his boot and the crackle of the net. And that's what just... I can hear that whenever I think of Eusebio in the World Cup. It's that goal that he thumped in at Goodison Park, and, and just the sound that went with it. And that was that was just him all over.
0: And of course, that game, uh, the semi-final, should have been at Goodison Park. I think we know why. If I, I sound like Mourinho. We know why. We know why the game was at the. Yes, we so, do indeed. <laughs> romance versus realism so you've done little teams you've done nearly men is there a third book in you or are you going to um keep trying to persuade your wife sarah who doesn't share your passion for football uh just to <laughs> love the game maybe that should be the third book i'd love to read that book actually how do you tell she actually
1: said because i got her to proofread yeah. various things in this before it went off to the publishers and um she did say "Oh." Why why couldn't it be as romantic as this about me? (laughs) 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 But there is is another book already in the works. It's still going to be some time. I've only just really started. But we talked about nearly teams, and there's one that I didn't put in this book that I kind of felt bad about not putting in, but there's a reason I didn't. It's because they had a victory uh, not in the World Cup but in the Euros. And that was France in the 80s. So their sort of narrative
0: I'd love ended to okay the UK because they
1: won. Yeah. So it's actually going to be about Euro 84 as a whole, rather than just the French and the Carre Magique. It's going to be about Euro 84. And you talked about it earlier, how only two games were shown on UK television. This should have fallen in my sweet spot that I was talking about of tournaments. I was nine, nearly 10. This would have been perfect, but there was only two games on. And I only remember watching one of them and that was the final round at a friend's house, uh, having not really seen much of the tournament, because it wasn't on, if you can believe that. But that French team, and they obviously be the primary uh, focus of it, and Platini, and what an incredible player he was, which shouldn't be forgotten, given, you know, no matter what he's ended up doing later in life.
0: You can't cancel (laughs) Billy Jean, as Dorian Linsky always said, you can't cancel (laughs) Billy Jean, but please be aware of what happened next. You can't cancel Kevin Keegan, uh, when you know that Newcastle United are currently trying to buy them, buy their way to glory for the first time since War Jackie was a war young lad. What would ja-
1: actually? Exactly. Let's
0: finish on that. What would Jackie Melbourne think of what's gone on in the last six months?
1: <laughs> it would be so utterly alien, <laughs> wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> he's a guy who used to work down the pits of Ashington. Uh, yeah, it's 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 not even remotely close to the game he played, or the, the club it was then, is it? It's, times have changed, obviously, but it's gone to such an extreme, hasn't it? Oh, my God, what an extreme it's gone to.
0: That is why we find comfort in the Football Times past. In These Football Times, it's still there. Is it thesefootballtimes.co? I can never remember off the top of my head. That's right, yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, and the book Stag Do for the Nearly Men, the eternal allure of the greatest teams that failed to win the World Cup by Aidan Williams. Uh, will be at the end of, well, it'll probably come out on the 2nd of May. I, oh, what I week, might yeah. do is I'll, I'll try and go into a bookshop and position my book about the Youth Cup called From Kids to Champions that I Absolutely. might to talk about next to yours. And by the way, have you enjoyed the process working with Paul and Jane?
1: Very much so, yes. And it's been a very different process to my first book, which was far more intense. It was a different publisher's and it was much shorter time frame and it was all a bit hectic, whereas this, I've actually had space to breathe and do it, but yes it's been more thorough on their part as well, Uh, so thoroughly enjoyed, yes, absolutely
0: Well, you haven't made a Jesper Olsen of this, it's definitely (laughs) a Michael Laudrop of a book or a Peter Schmeichel of a book and how are the lads (laughs) and how are the nearly men?
1: Absolutely, well thank you so much Johnny
0: Just like the library Just like the library Just like the library Shh. <sharp inhale>